All right. Well, welcome to the Hunts Backcountry podcast, guys. We are back with a Monday Minute. We've actually uh, we missed last week. Steve, it's good to be back with you, man. <laughs> yeah, things have. Uh, I feel bad, man. I've missed a lot of podcasts this year, but it's been uh, um, just yeah, there's a lot going on. Let's put it that way. So I've just been very very busy, but um, yeah, excited. It's uh, oh, if it's yeah, we're pre-recording this on Sunday because we are going to be slammed on Monday. Um, it's August and, 1st uh, as this is coming out. Yeah, August 1st. I say in seven days from now, I'll be uh, in a little super cub flying into the go hopefully kill a doll sheep. I kind of feel bad, man. Like the, the sheep numbers are so low up there. It's like, um, it's, uh, yeah, I think you're hopefully well, I'm going to try to kill the oldest one I can that's maybe out of breeding, you know, and, and yeah. not going to last the winter regardless. Mm-hmm. If I can yeah. be so picky. <laughs> I didn't see <laughs> we'll the see. details. I know that some stuff and i think it's way north like in certain sections of the brooks there was a closure um and i think yeah, that's that... nothing to do with numbers at least my understanding of it it's more of uh, the same reason they shut down our caribou katsubu hunt yeah um the federal substance board shut it down I, I haven't looked at all the details but i just see that where they shut down i don't know if it's the entire brooks range or two units of it i'm not sure how that lays out but yeah they did uh shut it down I, yeah Shouldn't even talk about it. I don't know all the details. I don't know if it's effective immediately or it starts next year or what. Yeah, I'm the same as you. I'm probably misinformed and only have caught pieces of it. But uh, my understanding is it does affect this year. Um, and it is not all of the brooks, but is, uh, I think, as you said, two units or at least portions of a couple of units. Um, so it's a certain geographic area. But uh, yeah, kind of a, a scary precedent. Um, yeah, we should get it's uh, even from yeah, my understanding. Anyone out there is an expert on this stuff. Uh, are very informed on what's going on up there. It'd be great to get them on here and chat about it. From my understanding, again, I could be wrong, but I I don't think it was something that uh, Alaska Department of Fish and Game supported. No, I don't. Yeah, I don't believe they supported the caribou hunt either. Yeah, the caribou closure. Crazy. Well, on a bright note, <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, I did neglect to mention these Monday Minute episodes are where we answer your listener questions. Uh, we got a few of those to tackle today. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Steve, I don't even know if you were uh, caught it, but I hopped on with Cody and we tackled a bunch of elk questions, which was a bunch of fun. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, we're back today to answer some listener questions. And one of those was... Uh, about your sheep hunt. So we'll get into that here in just a second. As you said, you're essentially going to be en route a week from today. Um, I'm crossing my fingers, Steve, that we're going to have a what's in my pack video done before you leave. <laughs> said like 15 times, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get it done, but I will get it done. I promise. All right. Uh, not to like be a spoiler alert here, but you had, when I was out there uh, last month, completely loaded your pack with all 10 days worth of food and everything. And I would say it's an impressive weight and it was in the 3,200 for a 10 day hunt. Yeah, I had, um, we went to shoot the video and then there's a couple uh, pieces. I was missing my headlamp that day. There's a couple of random things I had just forgotten to bring into the office. Um, but yeah, it was essentially as if I was going solo with 10 days of food and I was right at 39 pounds inside of a 3200 and that's with like a hilleberg tent and and everything i was you know rain gear just absolutely everything i needed on the list minus the headlamp and i i can't remember i grabbed the wrong jacket or something like that um, but certainly doable it just takes a little bit of um pre-planning you know for packaging your meals into kind of singular uh gallon ziploc bags and 
just taking a little time to make sure those are in a nice little brick shape and they sit in the pack nicely. And um, that's really about it, man. I didn't, I mean, that was full tripod, full on ATS 65 spine scope. Um, you know, I, I yeah, I, I don't understand. I can't, <laughs> I look at a 6,400 and I can't fathom filling that sucker out, but guys do it. So uh, to each their own. Uh, just this past week, um, Jay from the Mindful Hunter, uh, who if you've been tuning in the podcast and may have heard was on, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago uh, to talk about a pack review he did. And he just loaded the 6400 up for, I can't remember, I want to say his was a 12 or 14 day sheep hunt that he's going on solo. Mm-hmm. And I know from talking to him, even um, just before the review, he he was like hey i don't think i can because we we talked with jay on that podcast like he carries a lot um has a heavy pack going in a bunch of camera gear and all that stuff and he's a big dude and he's like i don't think i'm gonna be able to make the 6400 work and uh, it was kind of cool to see he loaded it up just before he left and he was like i did it i think he was at like 75 pounds but he even said i got room to spare in the 6400 so he went from going to think he couldn't even fit it in there to actually have some room to spare, even though he was still quite heavy. For you, Steve, uh, what's my packs coming? But right now, I do want to hear about your sheep hunts. And we had a listener question come through a while ago, but it's the perfect time to tackle it, kind of comparing your sheep hunts. And so for context, for uh, listeners who don't know, you hunted doll sheep uh, two years ago in Alaska, and then last year... Uh, had a sheep tag in the Frank church in your home state of Idaho. So here's this uh, question. Hey guys, I was just calling in to mainly hear Steve's experiences between his two sheep hunts. He's been on here in the last few years. I myself have been lucky enough to go on two sheep hunts in the Frank here in the last few years. And one year being the tag holder, the other year helping a buddy, um, loved every minute of it. Uh, pretty much can't get sheep off the brain. Uh, so with that being said, obviously I'm trying to figure out how to go on a doll sheep hunt uh, here in the future. And I'd just love to hear kind of what Steve has to say between the two hunts that he's been on. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's some similarities and some differences, and I would just kind of like to hear, hear Steve's thoughts on the two, you know, which one was harder, which one did he like more? Uh, you know, if there was some things he would do differently on each hunt, what would they be? Uh, yeah. Love to hear from you guys. So appreciate it. Thanks. All right. So there's a lot in there, Steve, but he mentioned similarities, differences, which one was harder, which one you liked more, anything you do differently, et cetera. Um, start where you want. Those are both sheep hunts, yes, but very different. Yeah, I guess the first thing is which one was harder. The Frank Church by far. <clears throat> um, it had just much, much, not well, rougher country, frankly. Um, the the Alaska range I was at is bigger country and that the, um, you know, it's just kind of bigger valleys and peaks and stuff like that. Uh, but the, the Frank is, you know, and there's certain areas of the Frank that aren't that hard and other areas that are really rough where I killed mine is pretty rough. Um, just, yeah, just much, much tougher getting around up in the Alaska range. Again, you know, this is relative to the 10 mile area that we were hunting. Um, you know, it was pretty much like brushing the creeks and then, once you got 50 feet of elevation above the creek, you were just walking across shale rock. Um, and so it's really easy walking in a sense that there's just no obstacles in your way. You're just like picking a, a spine ridge to climb up and gain some elevation and glass. And it really like 
we were able to cover a lot of country on that hunt because it's it's pretty easy to get around. Um, you got to be in shape. There are, you know, it's an easy day is wake up at camp, go climb that 3000 foot peak, spend all day up there and drop back down and camp for the night or, um, yeah, drop back down to 3000 feet and camp. Uh, so that's an easy day there, but that's, again, that's not that bad for, you know, sheep hunt. So, and the Frank you're dealing with no water, uh, everything's dead. <laughs> it's just like, it's not a, uh, not a pleasant place to hunt. It wasn't, um, the Frank church hunt was not a, particularly fun hunt in in that it's it is rough every like when we were there you know i I can't remember when i killed my sheep the 16th or something september both my my two my hunt prior to it and in that hunt there's fires all around us so it's just smoky and hot and uh it's not very pretty like there's a bunch of things about the frank hunt that make it really really tough which is also some of the appeal to it right um where it contrasts the alaska range it's freaking gorgeous uh everywhere you turn is as a photographic spot uh you're running into caribou and moose and grizzly bears and black bears and um it's a truly like if you appreciate beautiful country and and enjoy the backpacking aspect of it like you just have a giant grin ear to ear the entire time because you're it's just uh, of all the places i've been it's going to be you know top two or three of the most beautiful i've i've hunted so uh, and then the doll glass and the doll, they're a big white animal. They're fairly easy to spot, right? Uh, I mean, they can bed in some rocks and kind of be obscured from view, but for the most part, if you sit in a glassing spot for even, you know, six hours and glass in a basin, if a ram's in there, you're going to find it where on the Frank tag, you could, in fact, uh, where Tyler had spotted my sheep through the spotting scope. Um, I was staring at that exact spot with 15s, um, for two hours. I just kept you know, we were sitting on this good vantage point, could see piles of country and that spot just kept catching my eye and kept going back to it, kept going back to it and just nothing, right? Like, God, I don't see anything over there. Um, Cause it was, it was really close to where I had been the hunt prior. And I just knew that um, I had seen sheep tracks. So I kept going back over there looking and, um, and then Tyler picks up in the spine scope and I'm still looking like exactly where he's pointing. I can't see the sheep, um, you know, just being tan bodied and that, really just brown country of the frame courts all the grass is dead and the dirt and uh, they're very tough to spot so definitely frank's a much much tougher hunt um the alaska doll hunt is just absolutely scenic and beautiful and um man i'm, I'm beyond excited to get back up there here in seven days i love that like just thinking through the differences of those hunts you got dolls who are white and in that country comparing that to the tan sheep and tan country essentially of the frank and like what that does practically for like optics choices because Mm -hmm. just those generalities like hey what's the best optics or what should my optics be for sheep hunting and you could say oh well sheep hunting could be theoretically different than some other species but even breaking down well where are you sheep hunting which species of sheep right because i don't see you ever packing 15s for doll because you're not gonna need that in fact somebody was asking me the other day about Binos. I was just get a good pair of eights. That's all you freaking need. Um, I had eight by forty two. Those the um, I was testing the uh, uh, Swarovski. Wow, pures. Um, and I had them right before they went for sale, and I was blown away by them. But yeah, I had eight by forty twos, and they were fantastic for that hunt. Um, good wide field of view, easily to handhold and stand. You know, you just stand and look up and glass into a basin real quick as you're hiking along. Uh, and then, you know, you do need with dolls i would say i mean both can be important but 
the highest quality spine scope you're willing to pack weight-wise uh, because to decide if one's legal or not, which is a massive deal. You don't, don't want to shoot a sublegal ram. That's, you know, I believe you'd lose your license for a couple of years. Um, you know, you just need the absolute best glass you can to make sure that he's legal. Sometimes it's blatantly obvious. Um, and sometimes, you know, he'd stare at a ram for a couple of hours and go back and forth. And I guess if, if you're in that situation, you don't shoot. That's what happened to us. We had a ram that we snuck down in on and, and uh, he, you know, just like my gut told me it was legal, but I just couldn't make him legal in the spine scope with, with what we were looking at. You know, it was just, uh, it's like, I know that's an eight year old ram, but uh, he didn't quite check um, some of the boxes that we were looking at. You know, he wasn't double broomed, um, didn't pass the stick test. And we never felt like we got a really good angle to look at and see if he was the full curl, which is, um, it's tough because we were kind of above them and they were just down below us and just never got that angle after a couple hours. So, yeah. yeah. Looking back at that now, is there anything you feel like you could have done different, whether that's a different approach, having different optics, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, we, we went with, um, Dwayne, he just had an older swirl spotter. Um, and this trip coming up, we'll have a Koa 77, which to me is the best glass per, you know, uh, best performance with weight you know you could go up to the koa 88 which is going to be the best of the best but then you're at another 10 12 ounces on top of the 77 um and then dropping down to like a swirl ats 65 um you know there's a really really good choice and i'd pack that probably on on a deer hunt or something like that but on this sheep hunt where you know again losing your license for two years because you made a mistake is a big deal it's worth that extra 10 ounces so um well, he had some other parts of the question, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so similarities, differences, which was harder, which one you liked more. Is that a fair question? Did you touch on that? Um, yeah, I think I kind of did. I, I didn't particularly enjoy the Frank hunt as far as um, it was just hot, dry, smoky. There's no water anywhere. You're constantly packing. Every time you come across water, you got to fill up with six to eight liters of water. So your pack's a lot heavier. Um, we, we joked that there was like, I think one campsite, the whole time I hunted in there where it was like, Oh, here's a nice flat spot to pitch a tent. Other than that, you're just like hiking around forever. Um, I don't think there was a single spot where we camped. You could have had it like a larger two man tent. It was just scraping by just to find flat spots for single tents. Um, so it's just a tough, tough hunt where the, in contrast to the Alaska range, um, it's just, yeah, it's the most scenic stuff you could possibly imagine. I keep wanting to like ask other questions, but more of that's probably going to come in your what's in my pack video that we promised thousands of people we were going to shoot this week. So I'll save some of those gear questions. <laughs> Super general, but like, what's your mindset going into this hunt coming up this week? Having been there before, having walked away from what very well could have been a legal ram. Yeah. Um, Tyler and I were just talking on the phone yesterday. Uh, just trying to go in with very, say, just very open-minded. Well, I, I, I think if we, if I jump back on a podcast in two weeks, coming back from this trip and say, and was successful, I think we went in there and did, had one hell of an accomplishment, frankly. I think it's very low chance. Um, where I was looking at the harvest numbers, I want to say 20, 2019, there was maybe 1400 Rams killed 2020. It dropped to 600 and then 2021, it dropped to 400. Um, and so the sheep numbers just across the state, just between, um, 
yeah, I guess I don't know all the, the reasons for the decline. I think sheep numbers historically just go up and down, um, but uh, just a combination of some bad winners. I think I read that like 2013, 14 was a bad winner. And so all those Rams that would be eight years old now, legal Rams, you know, that, that year was slim pickings. Um, and then obviously had two really tough winners. We talked to um, Mark, so your mountain goat guide, Mm -hmm. uh, and he had been scouting sheep and had found some dead six-year-old rams, which is uh, a really bad sign because that should be a really nice, healthy ram. Um, so, yeah, I, <laughs> basically, I do have a caribou tag, um, and we're going to hunt our balls off for, for sheep uh, and, and get everything we got. That's for sure. But if a caribou steps on the way, I'll, I'll shoot it, pack it out, and then keep sheep hunting maybe. Or, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure how it'll work out, but I'm low, I feel – feel like I got a 20 to 25% chance of going in there and killing a ram. Got a hundred percent chance of killing a caribou. Um, and we'll just see how it goes, man. I'm just, uh, it's been a pretty, pretty crazy year for me. And so I'm just looking forward to this first hunt and, and knowing um, how beautiful that country is. I'm, I'm just excited to get back there and just, you know, frankly, if it was just doing another death hike. I'd be completely happy. Um, it's just beautiful up there and have that, uh, perspective and appreciation of things could be a lot worse right i'm, I'm going to be up there uh with a sheep tag and a caribou tag and one of my best friends and man uh, life doesn't suck that's helpful just even like these as we talk in all kinds of different ways how about you can have a great hunt and not kill anything but you just mentioned your percentages of like 20% chance of killing a sheep, 100% chance of killing a caribou, theoretically. And my head immediately goes to 100% chance of having an amazing adventure, right? Like, you know that that's going to happen. You know, you're going to enjoy the country, put on miles. You said be with a good friend. And that's just such a helpful way to look at it. Like, no matter what your odds are of a quote unquote successful hunt in terms of the harvest, you can make 100% odds of having a great trip. Yeah, like I, I guarantee I'm going to go up there and have an absolute blast, whether or not I come back with sheep horns in my luggage. All right, so shifting gears, Steve, sometimes we like to uh, mix in an exo-related question, and we had one come through that I thought would be fun to touch on. So here's this listener question. Hey, Mark. Hey, Steve. Arlen here. Love the podcast. Tons of great info. I recently bought a pack, and I'm super pumped on it. My question is in regards to the manufacturing process. I was curious to know about the people that manufacture the packs, the tools you use to manufacture the packs, the process you guys have gone through, as well as some of the prototyping theories and designs that you use when designing packs. I do a lot of DIY projects with my old sewing machine at home. And I know you guys covered a lot of topics and this was just something that I was curious about. So yeah, look forward to hearing from you and uh, I'll be listening. Thanks. All right, Steve. So at some point, this question makes me want to have like a, a much larger conversation because I think there's a lot of, a lot of things to cover in there that we honestly really haven't talked about or that people maybe wouldn't know about EXO. But uh, for today to get started, what are, what comes to mind for you? What do you want to touch on on that one? And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's my life, man. <laughs> like I, I spend probably at least six hours a day designing, um, pretty much year round. Uh, so yeah, I do all the design for XO. Um, basically just, uh, I guess it's all self-taught just kind of figuring stuff out. Um, I, 
my previous life, uh, I um, was in uh, construction and, and it was basically running AutoCAD. So I'm familiar with CAD drawing software. And I basically use that uh, in a combination with just hand sketching patterns out and sometimes, you know, literally sketch something on a napkin and then take it down. And so I'll, I'll really rough up an idea concept and then take it down to our sew shop. And then they have their uh, guy there who does the actual fabric pattern um, as far as just converting it into their file format. And they use a, what's called an auto metrics table. Um, and it looks like a, a giant laser printer. It's a table that's five feet wide by 45 feet long. And you, you roll out a piece of fabric on it. Our fabric rolls typically come in 60 inches, um, Cordura, stuff like that. And uh, you roll it out for the length of it. And then they just put it in there and it just cuts out the fabric. It cuts and marks, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, so the sewers have reference marks for sewing. And um, we have, uh, there's basically a lady at the sew shop, Vanessa. She's the coolest lady ever. Uh, <laughs> I spend every single day with her. Um, and she's just available whenever I need for sewing. So we don't, we don't have any sewers like in in-house at EXO. We just have it down at our sew shop. Um, but it's not our sew shop. We subcontract, but they, uh, over the years, as EXO has grown, they are 95% us. Um, so there's, oh man, I think there's 50 employees down there and almost, yeah, almost all of them are just sewing EXO stuff year round, which is, it's pretty crazy to think the, uh, the amount of people that we, you know, directly and indirectly employ, like if EXO were to go away, there's a lot of people that would lose their jobs. Um, but it's just cool to, you know, create those USA jobs, manufacturing jobs. But uh, yeah, Ines is down there and I just go down and, hey, let's sew this up. Uh, and she, uh, she has incredible patience with me because sometimes I'm like, I don't know exactly how we're going to put this together. But she's been sewing for 30 years, you know, and, and really uh, we've developed quite a relationship where we can, I can kind of communicate what I'm trying to get across. And, and she understands it and knows how to sew it together. And um, in fact, just this week, we were working on some lid modifications and uh, actually pretty happy with how they turned out. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much how it works. Just kind of rough, come up with an idea concept. Sometimes it's extremely far, far fetched. And, you know, I'd say, um, I don't know. Yeah. They're the vast majority of them just, you know, people will never see it's just an idea. I test it, don't like it, move on. Um, and then the, the next phase of it is as EXO's grown bigger, really the, um, we, we kind of learned this with the aluminum frame breaks, right? Um, when we launched K3 and it was aluminum, we had those frames break. Like I had, you know, hadn't done a large enough sample size for, you know, even say I build a hundred um, and we have one failure out of that. Uh, you extrapolate that out into, you know, thousands of pack sales all of a sudden that becomes a number that matters. Um, so I have to be extremely careful on, you know, everything has to be really well prototyped, really well developed, overbuilt. And then I get as many samples as I can out to guys to run um, and beat up and get feedback and, um, you know, really just continue to refine the product. So it's as perfect as possible before it goes out. And, you know, nothing's, not naive and that nothing's ever going to be absolutely perfect. I think that's part of what EXO's, what we've done well is continue to like, if something does pop up, we just fix it, you know, uh, and do our best to take care of the customer and, and make sure that it's right for the future going forward. Um, 
but but yeah, I've become very pretty much just extremely anal about uh, you know, there's no such thing as like a last minute, like, oh, let me change this little tweak. Like it's like no, because I've learned over the years that just the smallest change in materials sometimes pops up into all of a sudden a squeak develops, or um, that's probably the number one thing that pops up. But um yeah, so we just become very, very careful about um developing stuff and then uh, Really, I mean, you'll see in, in future generations of packs that, that you know will come eventually. Um, things are by the time they actually get to the public, they're they're on generation three, generation four before um, you know people actually see it for sale. So it's pretty cool. We have the ability to do that now. Or when you know you're first starting out, you're just kind of shooting from the hip and figuring things out as you go. And now it's it's a much more dialed in and refined process. As far as machines go. Um, you know, there's a combination. I mean, really, you got the autometrics table that cuts the fabric. Uh, they just have, um, just call it a stamper. It's this big, giant machine. It's, um, yeah, it's 50, 60 inches wide. And, and it has this hydraulic press, basically, that uh, um, presses down. And, and we, so the, there's lots of parts on the pack that we use what's called a die. And the die is um, foam. Um, Velcro shapes, uh, anything that really can be pressed into that uh, clicker die, um, we we do that. And so that, you know, you stamp out the foams and stamp out these different parts and pieces. And then um, there's some, actually I shot video the other day, we could throw this up when I was down at the sew shop, they were just cutting um, just uh, the cord for the side poles on the top of the side pockets. And it's just a, just a machine that uses um, kind of a hot knife and it they just load the the spool up and it just spits it out like just rolled out eight and a half inches cut it roll out eight and a half cut right and just spits it out it's pretty cool to watch um and then uh sewing machines that juki is the name and the, the brand name that the i'd say the vast majority of the sewing machines are used and there's single needle versions and double needle versions and programming ones that do like box x's um uh, bar, different bar tack machines. They have one set up specifically for our shoulder harness, um, getting the right amount of like tension where it's kind of clamping down on the foam and the spacer mesh and, and, and putting the bar tack in there. Um, so there's one machine that just set up entirely for that, right? It doesn't do anything else. Um, then different bar tack machines that our local sew shop here too is just getting, getting more and more, um, kind of, uh, let's say advanced and efficient. Uh, they just have, they just, brought in a new machine that just does all it does is the fold over bar tack webbing um on the end of in the end of any piece of webbing where you're going to put like our strap keeper through uh, it's just an automated thing they slide the webbing in little part folds it over slides into the machine bar tacks it spits it out and the guy loads the next one in so they're becoming a lot more efficient efficient investing in machinery to kind of help produce more packs so um we do intend to we've done a so so shop um video that was been up but it's been i think wow oh man we did that in like was, 2014 or 15 it's been a while yeah, it's been a um so i certainly had intended i think it's on our you know when you and i brainstorm of like video projects to do that's certainly on the list of doing updated so so shop video because it's it's cool like i actually um you got to go down there the other day with your family and they got to see it for the first time i actually took my wife down a couple months ago um, and all this time was like, I can't believe I've never taken down here. And she was just kind of blown away. Cause it's, um, but it's just cool to see manufacturing. It's cool to see behind the scenes. Uh, I was just, um, sitting on the uh, toilet the other day on Instagram, scrolling <laughs> through reels. And the, there was one that just made, it was the, um, 
the cotter pin for a tow hitch, right? Um, your trailer hitch. Um, and uh, it was just uh, this stupid machine that spit it out, you know, and it was just like a piece of wire. It came out and bent it, bent it, bent it, bent it, and sheared it off. And then it was done. It was just like, that stuff's so cool to see. Yeah, it was fun seeing. Well, I've been down there, but it was fun for my family to see the show shop because they, I mean, they see packs, but they have no idea, you know, what goes into yeah. it. And uh, it's so cool. So cool. Yeah, gosh. And I know we, I mentioned this before, and I, I don't, the number's like 250 or 260. Like if you pulled the thread out of a backpack, it would fall into 260 different pieces. It's a, like, doesn't even seem possible, right? Um, mm-hmm. But there's so much that goes into, into production. So, um and it's been um the last few years frankly has been cool because i've um i'm spending less time you know i've got great employees like like you and pat and jake and jack and omar and bella and um where i'm i'm able to spend more time in design and uh really just learning just you know i've learned a lot on the sewing side um just because i spend so much time down there with anessa and watching how things are constructed and um yeah it's uh it's been cool to do well let's go from something really complex like building a pack to something that listeners at home can do really easily and make something great <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. I tried to throw a good transition I like um it. we had a question come through this week um and i'll just read it this guy wrote in and said i wanted to recommend a podcast about making your own dehydrated meals for the backcountry i think that many others uh, including myself would love to have ideas and recipes for making healthy backcountry meals instead of buying packaged dehydrated meals and shocking our system on the mountain with foods that we are not used to eating. I'd love to hear an expert talk on this. So I uh, emailed him back. So that's a great topic. We do have an episode on that and it's episode 126 um, with a guy, Glenn, who runs a site called Backpacking Chef. And I found Glenn's site, oh man, years and years and years ago. Uh, And it's a very old looking site, but it's a jam packed with helpful information and very easy. And it has recipes, information, basically pretty much everything you need to know to start dehydrating your own meals. And then that's who we had on the podcast in episode 126. Um, So if that's something you want to check out, definitely go listen to the episode and we'll leave a link in the show notes. And then when I told this guy who wrote in about that episode and uh, where to go find it and all that, he followed up with another email and said, is there a way that I should be searching for topics within the podcast library? You guys have so many previous episodes and it seems like everything I ask about or suggest has already been discussed. Once again, great point. (laughs) So just letting listeners know, if you go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast, You can find all the previous episodes and what's helpful is there's a search function there and there's categories. And so if you subscribe to this podcast and whatever podcast app you use, right, whether that's like sound, uh, yeah, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple podcast app, Google podcast, et cetera, et cetera. You can scroll through episodes, but that can be tough to do because we have episodes going back almost seven years at this point. So again, if you go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast, you can search for episodes uh, and browse by categories such as elk or optics or what have you. So just wanted to, one, let listeners know about that dehydrating episode and then two, where they can go search for previous episodes. So I've actually been in the last 
two days, I've made 14 DIY dehydrated meals for upcoming hunts. It's a hey, super make, easy uh, process. 10 more and send them in the mail to me. <laughs> <laughs> I will bring some on our elk count. How about that? Oh, I need them for sheep out here in seven days. Come on. Well, yeah, I'm trying to need to overnight some stuff here. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it is, it really is easy uh, to dehydrate stuff. Check out that podcast. Uh, actually, Kyle from Volley to Peak Nutrition has a basically A to Z resource on getting started as well. So I'll leave links to um, all that in the show description if you guys want to check it out. Uh, here's a random, like, this is one of those questions that's small. I never would have thought of it, but maybe there's something to it. A guy wrote and said, I hear you guys reference your Garmin inReach frequently. I was wondering if you found a perfect spot to attach it to the bag. If you carry a dedicated holster for it, do you put it in your pocket or something else? Then he said, I have a K3 3200 and I'm looking to get a holster, but I've wondered if you found a better method. Um, I will say, Steve, he's carrying the InReach Explorer, which is larger. We can talk about that in a second. You and I both carry the Mini. Is there any, where do you carry it? Does it ever change? And why do you carry it there? Yeah, I mean, for years it bounced around, you know, whether it was in my lid or, and I would put it, um, I just used the carabiner and attached it right inside where the stash pocket loop is for the, the water bladder access. Um, so it's kind of a good spot, like it's at the top of the pack and, whatnot and then the last i don't know it was maybe last two years or just last year i just clipped it to um the vinyl harness so i got fhf vinyl harness and i just clipped it there and just from a safety standpoint you know my vinyl harness is with me more than the pack because certainly like you know on the sheep hunt i'm gonna we're gonna get to a peak i'm gonna drop my pack and then i'm gonna go hike 50 yards over here or there to sit down on glass right um and say i hike and fall off a little cliff or something like that um, at least my inReach is with me and it's not with the pack 50 yards away. So to me, that just made more sense, you know, certainly like, uh, the guys who in heavy brown bear, grizzly bear country are packing, um, pistols and attaching to their bino harness. I think that's the same logic, right? When it's attached to your pack, that's not necessarily with you as much as your bino harness is. So that's where I've been putting it at the, in fact, they keep meaning to the FHF, the little mesh side pocket isn't big enough to actually put it in there. Um, I keep meaning to take it down and just modify it real quick. I looked at how it was constructed and I was like, oh, that'd be a piece of cake. Um, make that pocket a little bigger so I can actually drop it in there. Um, but for now, it just kind of dangles off the side. Is there anything else that you keep in your harness specifically because you're maybe away from your pack potentially? I know you mm, keep it pretty no. streamlined. Yeah, bullets, um, elk reed, that's it. Yeah, ammunition is one that comes to mind for me. Uh, actually, thinking of our little elk rodeo we had this past fall, and your <laughs> your pack tried to find its way to the bottom of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's a perfect example of like it's great. I mean, we even have our our rifle carrier, or sorry, our cartridge carrier for the hip belt pouch, which is, a, which is a great place to keep some ammunition. But I definitely always keep a couple extra rounds when I'm rifle hunting in the harness for the exact reason of I'm whether it's intentional or not, I may find myself away from my pack uh, yeah, to make a shot. So, um, and then I will say this guy's carrying the larger inReach Explorer. Um, I personally don't carry that one like you, Steve. I have the mini, but I do have a buddy who has the Explorer and he runs the FHF. I had to look up which one it was. It's their Rhino or Radio GPS pouch. And it does work very well with that larger inReach Explorer. 
And that's something you could attach to either the pack or to your bino harness. So that'd be a great one to check out. All right, guys. Well, that's a wrap today. Stay tuned uh, to see. I'm throwing it out there again. Steve's what's in my pack video. Uh, If you guys don't already receive our emails, I'll just say that there's a lot of content that we share that may not make it to the podcast, such as these videos. So just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash newsletter. You can sign up. Uh, We don't send you a bunch of junk, put it that way. Um, But that way you'll make sure you're getting all the content we do put out. And as always, if you have questions for us, look for the link in the show description. Uh, There'll be one that says, leave a message. It's going to take you over to SpeakPipe and whatever device you're using, you'll be able to leave us an audio message for a future Monday Minute episode. Steve, super excited because next time we're on a podcast, it very well may be after Alaska Sheep Hunt. Yeah, hopefully we'll get one. I think we'll pre-record Monday Minute with Tyler if we can squeeze in and just do some last minute kind of hunt recap and um might be half of it would be just Tyler and I planning because we we've been kind of (laughs) been able to talk a few times on the phone but he's busy I'm busy so I um, like that we'll have a final pre-hunt call and just happen to hit record yeah I like it all right we'll talk to you guys soon